welcome back to CGSW 90.9 FM. My name is Sean Collins, and I'll be the host of the next hour of programming. I'm beyond excited at this month's show as we've got an incredible lineup for you. The bulk of the show will be spent doing an interview with Greenpeace Canada campaigner Mike Hadima, and he's going to give us an insight as to life as an activist who's focused around changing the energy and environmental picture both in Canada and globally. We're also pleased to welcome Todd Hirsch, who's the chief economist for ATB Financial, and he's going to give us his industry insight as to what is happening with supply and demand in the global oil industry today. We're also going to be joined by Mark Silva of Blue Wave Capital, who's on the cutting edge of investing in and developing new renewable energy projects across the United States. As always, we want to extend a huge thank you to Bullfrog Power, who supports Energy Voices, and you can learn more about their incredible programs to give you an opportunity to choose a more clean and green lifestyle for your own power consumption. Visit bullfrogpower.ca slash studentlife to learn more. As always, we encourage you to share your thoughts, ask constructive questions, and participate in the dialogue by using hashtag Energy Voices on Facebook and on Twitter. And without further ado, we're going to kick things off with our first interview with Mike Hadima. Next up on Energy Voices, I'm excited to welcome Mike Hudima, who's a climate and energy campaigner for Greenpeace Canada. Mike's been involved in some of the most interesting act- actions around energy and climate, specifically targeting Canada's oil sand sector, and is going to give us an overview of what life is like as an environmental activist. So first off, welcome to the show, Mike. Thanks. It's good to be here. Yeah. So I, I want to start off with a, a question that will give us a bit of an opportunity for you to tell your personal story. So what sparked your passion and interest in the environment in the first place? And what got you started in this path of working for Greenpeace Canada? Uh, I don't know if there is necessarily one uh, defining moment. Like I definitely as a child, uh, I would always do camping trips. Uh, to the mountains and to different uh, natural areas. So I definitely uh, developed an appreciation for it. Uh, but I think it was really, you know, my my career in political activism or my, uh, you know, passion to, to really get involved in, in trying to make a difference or trying to make a change, I think, started when I, I started traveling. Uh, and when I started traveling, I just saw so many different ways uh, that people were existing, ways that communities were uh, being run ways, uh, different de- democratic systems, uh, different ways that uh, different cultures prioritize uh, the environment, prioritize social justice. Uh, and I think it really opened to my my eyes to the fact that, you know, we have so many different options for uh, how to run uh, our systems in Canada, you know, that and if we're not engaged, uh, that those systems are going to be developed without us. Uh, but if we are engaged and we have the potential to uh, to really uh, change uh, the direction that we're going, and uh, and when I look at a, a lot of things uh, in Canada, especially when it comes to uh, the environment, uh, I don't like the direction that our country's headed, uh, and so I really wanted to try to get involved in in pushing for the things that I, I felt needed to happen. That I feel that a lot of other people uh, support and. Uh, and that's what I've tried to do with, with my work with Greenpeace. Mm. And and what are those issues? If you said that there's things that the Canada or that Alberta is doing that you don't particularly agree with, in your mind, what what is the is it one issue? Are there several issues? What do you feel are those major issues that we need to be thinking about as a society? Well, there's definitely a lot of different issues that that intersect, and so it's hard to really pinpoint one. But definitely the the major focus of my work with Greenpeace right now is issues surrounding the, the tar sands and the development of the tar sands. And, of course, that brings in a lot of different issues. It brings in issues around climate and the fact that we're in uh, a growing climate crisis that we need to begin addressing immediately or we really could lose, uh, you know, the entire planet uh, if we don't act quickly. It brings in issues around First Nation rights and the fact that treaty rights are being trampled because of uh, the impact that this development is having, that communities are, are getting sick and traditional practices and ways of life uh, are really being decimated. Uh, it brings in air pollution and water pollution issues as we 
see all these toxins uh, being dumped into the air, being dumped uh, into our water systems. It brings in land impacts and impacts to uh, to animals and species just because of how big and sprawling uh, this development is. You know, it covers an area 142,000 square kilometers, which is the, the size of the state of Florida, uh, which is a massive amount of land that's being auctioned off to multinational oil companies. Uh, and then it also brings in issues around democracy and and how it seems that our democracy is being corrupted by becoming more and more of a, a petro-state where uh, whatever oil companies want is uh, the way that our, our democracy goes rather than really reflecting the voices of the people that it, uh, that it was set up to represent. Uh, and so all those issues together, I think, come together when, when you look at the tar sands. And I think that that's what, what makes me so passionate to get involved in, in the issue because it really... Uh, touches on on so many different streams, uh, and it's a really historical moment that that we're a part of because uh, you know coming back to climate change, we are the last generation that has a chance to do something about this problem, uh, and we either uh, don't do anything and and uh, let it get out of control and uh, not be able to stop it, or we can uh, turn things around and and really make uh, a big transition that that would change. Uh, uh, you know, as Naomi Klein says, would change everything. Mm-hmm. And and when you talk about the the the, I, I love the quote that you had about that we're the last generation that can do something um, about climate change. We often at Student Energy use the terminology that we're the first generation to understand the science behind it, and the last generation with an ability to do something yep. about it. Um, and I think that's really powerful. Uh, just wanted to to get a sense of. Um, that the, the oil sands and all the issues around from an environmental and an economic and a political perspective, it's really, in the grand scheme of things, a, a modern phenomenon that uh, it's the the initial developments in technology were back in the, fifth, the 60s and 70s, um, but it's really only been sort of over the past 10 years that it's got some notoriety in, in Alberta and in Canada. So why do you think it is that uh, the oil sands have moved from a topic um, of sort of minimal importance and discussion globally to one of the hot topics throughout the United States and, and even a topic that's important globally? Well, I think there's a, a lot of different factors that play into it. You know, I think part of it is just uh, that the economy changed, and so it made made it possible for companies to start making money on tar sands development, which is much more cost-intensive than, than regular oil operations. And so when you saw oil reach... Uh, 80 to $100 a barrel, that's where you really saw all these companies rush to Alberta to try to uh, exploit that opportunity as quickly as possible. Uh, but on the other side, I think you're also seeing you know, a growing awareness uh, in Canada around uh, First Nation rights, around treaty rights, uh, and the importance of those. And, and they really are under attack when you, you look at tar sands development. You know, most of the communities uh, in the tar sands in all three regions are First Nation communities uh, that are heavily impacted by uh, this development, that are seeing uh, health implications in their community, that are uh, seeing uh, treaty rights violations because of this development. Uh, you know, the Beaver Lake Cree alone have a lawsuit uh, against the Canadian and provincial government citing over 20,000 treaty rights violations on their traditional territory. And so, you know, that's a, uh, you know, a huge uh impact that, that that that's having. And so I think that heightened awareness has really uh, helped fuel the campaign and really First Nation communities have been the real leaders uh, in a lot of the tar sands work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I think you also just have, you know, the rising urgency to act on climate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when you talk about Canadian climate action, the one of the largest uh, greenhouse gas producers in the country is the tar sands. And it's also the fastest rising source of greenhouse gas emissions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so if we are going to do our part uh, as a country, uh, it really begins in the tar sands. And, and I think that that's why you've seen such a, a focus and, and why the awareness has spread uh, so quickly. Mm-hmm. And we had the, the pleasure of having Sapporo Berman and Art Starrett and John Carruthers um, have a, a debate about pipelines uh, about last year around this time. And I wanted to ask a question of you that I asked Sapporo Berman. Um, why do you think it is that right now the line in the sand has finally been drawn? There, there's been oil development uh, 
for for hundred plus years, and we've really seen the the environmental activist movement um, draw a line in the sand around uh, development in Alberta, around the Keystone XL pipeline, around the Northern Gateway pipeline. There's been a litany of projects that haven't evoked the same emotional response that these ones have had, and so. From thinking about it from a broader perspective as an environmental activist, what is it about these projects or or what is it about the organization of activists? Just from your viewpoint, why have these these actions been so effective at rallying millions of of the support of millions of people as opposed to previous projects that were just a blip on the radar? Uh, part of it, I would say, is just sort of the nature of the projects themselves. So, you know, I do think that there's a difference uh, in tar sands development than, you know, conventional oil and gas wells. And so you're really talking about when you're talking about the tar sands of moving into this, you know, form of extreme energy development that is far more greenhouse gas intensive, that is much more destructive uh, and on a scale that that we haven't seen before uh, at a time that our world can't afford it. Uh, And so I think it's sort of the combination of those two factors that has really provided a lot of momentum uh, for us to draw a line uh, in the tar sands and really uh, trying to say, you know, this is where where we make our stand. Uh, and then at the the other end, I think it's also just, like I talked about before, that it's really that convergence point of all these different issues of, of First Nation rights, of uh, land protection, of climate that are uh, all coming together, uh, and democracy all coming together and meeting in this project. And it's a chance to to talk about and to, to defend uh, all of those at the same time and start a conversation and hopefully uh, push for progressive change on all of those issues at the same time, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I think that's why you've seen so many different groups uh, get involved. And then, uh, you know, the government really also gave us a roadmap for how to do it, because when you talk about these sprawling uh, pipelines, uh, one of my friends said, you know, as much as these pipelines are a map of destruction. They're also a map of resistance, and they're a map of all the different communities that are affected by the same project that we have the ability to to outreach to, to talk to, and to unite with uh, to stand against them. And that's you know really been pivotal in in making this thing as big as it it could uh, can be is is because of those pipeline projects and those proposals uh, have really united us all in in opposition. Because once people learn the facts about uh, you know, the dangers that these pipelines would bring, uh, they very quickly sign on board. And I'm going to use that to transition a little bit from the conversation about sort of Greenpeace and, and the overall uh, sort of focus into a little bit more about Mike Edema as the person. Um, you, you use the term action and activities a lot. Uh we always talk about how there's there's an entire tool chest of ways that you can enact change in the global energy system. You can be an engineer, you can be an inventor, you can be an entrepreneur. Um, and so you've obviously chosen to, to spend your time as an activist and focusing on drawing large-scale public awareness to issues that you're really passionate about. And so I wanted to, to get a little bit more background on on sort of what led you to that path and, and why you, you felt that the path of going down and, and working towards being an activist was what drove you and what made you passionate? Yeah, I think for me, part of it was uh, like in university, I went through law school uh, with the intention of eventually becoming a lawyer and uh, using my law degree to work on progressive issues. And what I found uh, sort of going through that, that experience is, is partially just didn't mesh with my my personality where, you know, I'm very uh, impulsive and want, want to take action on things uh, right away, and, and the legal system is a much longer process. Uh, but it was also in talking with lawyers, and uh, a lot of my progressive lawyer friends uh, told me that, you know, that, that there, there's not necessarily a lack of progressive lawyers. What's lacking is the political space for lawyers to move within uh, and to get the type of decisions that we want. And that it's only when there's a lot of societal pressure do we see judges making uh, much more progressive decisions that, that really move the yardsticks. And when we look back at the history of change, it really is social movements that uh, have driven a lot of it. Uh, and so I think after talking with them and then also finding that the, the law school experience wasn't necessarily uh, in sync with my own sort of personal passions, that I made the decision that where I could make the most amount of change was 
was working from from outside and really trying to create that broad uh, civil society pressure uh, that gave people inside the system a lot more room to move and to uh, to get the type of decisions that we want, that we need to see. Mm. And and how did you learn that that that's something that it's it's sort of simple when you mention it like we need to create the societal pressure to to enable these sort of more visionary longer term decisions to be made but how does one learn that space there's not a law school for that sort of thing it's true but there definitely should be <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't really know how one goes about learning it like for me uh, when I was in university I, I just found. Uh, five friends that all cared about similar issues that, that I did, uh, and we just started various groups. And for whatever issue we were working on, we had a different acronym. So when it was uh, corporate issues, we were fighting uh, unaccountable, naughty corporations or funk. And and we would just try things. And uh, no, none of us had any training in how to do activism or, or how to work on these issues. And so we would try something, and then we'd reflect on on how we did, and then uh, try to improve it. And then I think just over time, we learned to be sort of more and more effective in that. And because we were a small group, uh, rather than trying to get out big numbers for rallies, uh, we used a lot of theater because we felt theater was a, uh, a, and using humor was sort of a good way to get people's guard down uh, and to be really effective with a a small group of people. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then over time, we just, kept learning and kept getting uh, hopefully better uh, at what we were doing. And, you know, I still uh, screw up uh, a bunch, but, uh, but it's, I think it's just that process. And I think that that's what, what stops a lot of people is that they, you know, they, they think they need to know exactly what to do, or they think they need training. And there are a lot of different places uh, to get training, to get workshops uh, in lots of places uh, right across the country. Uh, but don't let that stop you either. Just, uh, the important thing is to is to do uh, is to reflect on that doing, and then uh, to do it better the next time. Mm-hmm. And and what are like you said that you sort of started small with a, a cohort of friends at the University of Alberta, but um, maybe because give us a, a couple highlights of some of the major actions that you you were involved in prior to your time at Greenpeace that sort of established your your credibility or established sort of your passion for the the space. Uh, well, there's a I, there's a lot. <laughs> what, what what's Mike Hadima most proud of? Um, I don't know. I think like what I'm most proud of is just the people that I've met uh, along the way, and uh, and just the creativity that's uh, that's come out of I think some of the stuff that I've been uh, a part of. And so, you know, one of the the first actions that I was ever a part of was uh, occupying now Anne McClellan's office, who at that time was. Uh, the Minister of Justice, uh, and this was just after September 11th when Canada was thinking about putting a, a very broad, uh, stretching uh, anti-terrorism uh, legislation forward that had a lot of implications uh, for civil society and for for the the right of of protest and the right of peaceful uh, dissent. Uh, you know, very similar to the the same type of discussion that uh, the Harper government is trying to put forward now, and. Uh, we went, and originally we went to Anne McClellan's office just to sing uh, a few songs uh, with the, the Raging Grannies in Edmonton, uh, and then we just didn't feel like it was effective. And so we uh, went to a sandwich shop, we debriefed, we, we felt, you know, said that we didn't think it was effective, and we marched right back over and, and started a four-day occupation uh, of her office. Uh, and on the first day, we moved out uh, all of her furniture onto her front lawn and, and said that she was being evicted. Uh, and then we would hold brainstorms every night to come up with new ideas for, for how to continue uh, highlighting the issue. And so a lot of it is just uh, is trying to keep things fun, trying to keep things creative, uh, trying to keep a space where uh, you're able to, to do that and then to, to put those plans in action. Mm-hmm. And, and how do you... And- as someone who's putting himself directly in the spotlight, in 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 banging the drum figuratively and literally sometimes around issues that you're really passionate about, um, how do you deal with the the 
the personal repercussions that come of that and and you sort of set a big a bullseye on your back as someone who is is really pushing the status quo and anytime the status quo is pushed there's always people who come out against that and, and come out forcefully to defend the status quo so um, maybe give us some examples of of what the repercussions have been for you personally in taking such an active stance and sort of how you deal with that as a person uh, well, there's definitely been a few. Like, definitely, if you if you look at my my Twitter account, you'll see uh, you know the daily sort of feedback that we get from uh, a lot of people. Just, just to jump in there, I I saw one. Uh, I don't know if it was a week or two ago, but it was Mike Hadima hates Canada. <laughs> was the, yeah, no, was I definitely very, get that very, one a lot. <laughs> very simple and direct. Mike Hadima yeah. hates Canada, <laughs> which I, I have to ask on the record: Do you hate Canada? I do not hate Canada. <laughs> no, <laughs> but no, there is like, definitely like a lot of uh, online pushback uh, for sure. There's, uh, I was actually in a bar once, where I was behind a group of people that were talking about how they. They wanted to beat me up, uh, even though they had no idea what I looked like <laughs> and that I was standing right behind them. And so it was a very surreal experience for me to to witness this conversation. Um, but then there's also, you know, there's family tensions. Like my sister works for uh, an oil and gas company, and that's created some tensions within uh, our own family, even though, you know, I believe that there are lots of good people that, that work for oil and gas companies, and my sister is one of them, but it's still created uh, this tension between us. Uh, and then there's been, you know, a lot of uh, tension sometimes in, in professional lives, too, of just uh, the persona that uh, people think that you have. And so I've been in a lot of different meetings where people have come up to me afterwards and said, wow, you're, you know, a lot nicer and funnier than I thought you would be. Uh, I thought that you'd be really angry. <laughs> uh, and so there's just sort of these perceptions that, that people have of this persona that uh, that aren't necessarily true. And uh, in terms of how to deal with that, I think part of it is uh, just letting a lot of it roll off your back. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, lots of times I judge the effectiveness uh, of what we're doing by how full my Twitter feed is from some of these people that uh, that troll me every day. Uh, part of it is, you know, having a good group of, uh, people and community members that can really, you know, support you and also keep you in balance because there's a lot of times where we need external people to, to help us reflect on, on what we're doing and, uh, and hold us to account. Mm-hmm. Um, and then part of it is also, I really try to, to maintain a balance in my own life. And so I do a lot of other activities, like I love cooking and holding community brunches and, uh, holding house concerts and and going out dancing or or rock climbing, uh, and all of that just helps balance me as a person. I think uh, helps me in my work because uh, I'm bringing more to it. Mm-hmm. And and have you always seen yourself? The, the the term activist gets thrown around a lot. Have you always seen yourself as an activist? And is that something you'll see yourself being for the rest of your career? Or sort of what's your thoughts on that term, activist? Uh, I think it's, you know, a very, it's become a very loaded term. And, and to me, you know, the, the term activist just means somebody that, that is active. Uh, and if you take it from that angle, then, then yeah, I want to, I want to be an activist, uh, the rest of my life. I want to be somebody who's active in my community, who's, uh, actively pushing for, uh, things that, that, you know, I feel would, would benefit our, our society or benefit our, uh, our environment. And, uh, I want to continue that, and whether you know, I don't necessarily think that that will be with Greenpeace for the rest of my life. But I, I w- always want to make that a part of of who I am, and I think uh, more people uh, need to make it a part of who they are as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, this is. Uh, I think one of the things and that we wanted to talk about, and and one of the reasons we wanted to bring you on the show is that uh, for for student energy, we talk a lot about how there needs to be this global level conversation about how we transition to a sustainable energy system. And uh, we've had lots of people on the show that work inside the industry and are trying to, to push for that sustainability transition from the inside and you're working from the outside. And so I always like, we always like to give people a chance to see what it's like from someone else's perspective. And so I, I wanted to ask the question that if if you had chosen to spend your time and your career working inside the existing energy industry to make it more sustainable, where would you put your focus and energy? Well, I think I'd 
put my focus and energy in, in the renewable energy sector because I do think that it's the uh, the biggest growth sector when it comes to uh, to energy uh, for our future, uh, both because the costs are uh, plummeting and coming uh, down so that in many places around the world, uh, renewables are cost competitive uh, with uh, with fossil fuels uh, and also because, you know, the world needs it. And so uh, if I was to work inside uh, an energy company, that's the, the type of company that I'd want to be involved in. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Uh, and we've gotten through most of the questions that I wanted to ask you today, but uh, I always like doing this with people in your position that um, what would you do if you were Prime Minister of Canada for one day? What is the legislation or the action that Mike Hedema would make? Wow, that's a, there's a lot. <laughs> you, have, you, have, you have one day, so you can only get through maybe one or two bills. What's, uh, what would be the things that you would focus on that you think are that important? I know, but I can get a lot done in the day. That's the only <laughs> thing. Um, I, you know, I think when it comes to the issues that I work on, I think one of the biggest is just really setting some some goals when it comes and legislating some goals when it comes to uh, what we're going to do about climate change. And so, really legislating those reductions to take place, uh, and then fastening the policies that that will get us there. Uh, and so, I think you know, if I had one day and and one issue that uh, I could focus on that was in you know the current scope of my work. That would be the one that I would hit first. Mm-hmm. And th- the last question I have for you today is: um, our audience is is primarily uh, post secondary students around the world who are deeply passionate about energy, uh, and and we haven't had a lot of environmental activists on the show before. And so, for any of our students that that feel the same way as you and, and had some of the same sort of passions and interests, how would you recommend somebody who's nineteen or twenty years old um, explores this side of of the equation and explores this as a potential career path or, or passion area? Well, I'd say there's you know a lot of different organizations, of course, that that you can join, and so. Uh, you know, one would just be looking at what other, what organizations are already working on the issues that you're passionate about uh, as a starting place. And so getting involved with those. And, and if there's not a, a group or organization that's already working on your issue, then, then trying to find other like-minded people uh, and trying to do it yourself. And there's a lot of different resources out there about, about how to do it. Uh, I'm a big fan of recycling ideas. And so I think one place a lot of people get stuck is just what to do. Uh, and so lots of times I just go online and look at what other groups are doing. Uh, and I pull from that and uh, adapt it for, you know, my lo- the local audience or uh, for local circumstances. But I, I take those ideas and, and run with it and, and uh, turn it into to my own. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I also think just recognizing, you know, our historical role right now, and especially the historical role that students have always played in, in fashioning social movements. You know, throughout history, students have been at the forefront of so many different uh, social struggles. Uh, and when we talk about the movement to uh, stop climate change, uh, you know, it's an issue that students really need to be at the, the forefront of, uh, and, you know, one at least one of the bodies at the, the forefront of this movement, uh, because it's really going to affect young people the most. Uh, and it's our future uh, that's on the line and our future that's being sacrificed by the decisions that people are making today. And so we have a very big responsibility to to speak out and to, to, to try and uh, do something about it if we don't like the, the direction that it's headed. And, and I definitely don't like the direction. Yeah. And, and the really challenging part is that of the of the way we get to a sustainable energy system, the easy part is setting the targets. It's easy for old politicians to set a 2050 emissions target. Uh, the challenging part is being part of that generation that has to actually implement that. And and we're still not even on the path of knowing where we're all targeting towards as a global society, which is quite scary. Yeah, I, I agree. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, and then any, any projects or any activities that you want to plug for our audience, Mike? Well, I think one of the, you know, this year is really going to be a huge year uh, for the climate, uh, and especially uh, within Canada for a variety of different reasons. I think the first is that uh, on April uh, 13th, uh, the premiers will get together in Quebec City uh, to talk about 
premiers uh, and what they can do uh, to tackle the climate crisis. Uh, and on April 11th, uh, we are uh, in coordination with a variety of different uh, organizations, unions, uh, civil society groups, and First Nations have put out a call out to people to come to Quebec City uh, to greet the premiers because we want to show the the massive amount of support that there is for action on the climate uh, and to show the premiers that we're watching uh, and that, you know, climate leaders uh, can't support tar sands pipelines at the same time. And they really do uh, need to choose what side they're on. And so that's the first opportunity. But there's also uh, a Summit of the Americas meeting uh, in July that's happening in Toronto, again, focused on the climate. And so, again, it's a huge uh, potential for us to show uh, the importance of acting on climate. Uh, and then, uh, of course, the, the federal election, which is tentatively scheduled uh, for October. Uh, and that election has huge implications uh, for society, for our environment, and for our climate as well, because we have a prime minister in power that, uh, that really doesn't seem to understand uh, climate science and, uh, and has no pathway to, to address it. Uh, and so we have another chance to to make a real difference this year, and all of that leading up to uh, a very big meeting in in Paris, where uh, countries around the world will try to do uh, the same thing. Mm-hmm. It's it's interesting. There's there's almost this groundswell of optimism that I'm I'm seeing. There's there's definite understanding of the the monumental challenges ahead, but there. 2015 is is shaping up to be arguably the most exciting year in in global energy and climate that we've seen. And so uh, thanks for sort of laying out what some of those big high points are, are going to be over the next little while. Yeah, for sure. Anytime. Okay. And so I just wanted to, to say a big thank you on for myself and, and our listeners. We really pride ourselves on being an organization that can showcase all perspectives on energy. And I think that you had a really articulate and sort of concise view on, on sort of what you're passionate about and why you're passionate about it. And so I just wanted to say thanks for taking the time to, to share with us today. No worries. Thanks for the program. Okay. Take care, Mike. Voices, we're going to do a deep dive looking into the world of renewable energy project development. Uh, to do this, we've got an interview with Mark Sylvia, who's the managing director of Blue Wave Capital, an American-based company that's focused around how to develop new renewable energy projects. So welcome to the show, Mark. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you. So give us a little bit of background first and foremost on, on what is Blue Wave Capital and what is your role at the company? Sure. Well, Blue Wave Capital is a solar development company. Uh, We bring together financing and uh, construction and project sites to develop solar PV uh, in Massachusetts and in other parts of the country and and, uh, globally as well. Uh, My role is as the managing director for business development, and I also work on external communications and government affairs. And and one of the things that we wanted to ask you about today um, was just to give us a sense of being involved in the development of a renewable energy technology and deploying solar in the United States. Um, what role has the, the Obama administration had and, and what role has government intervention had in, in supporting or hindering your business, say, over the last one to three years? Sure. So uh, at the federal level, we'll talk about the federal level first, but I would also like to add that you know most of the real innovating on policy and incentives has really happened at the state level uh, across the U.S. But at the federal level, uh, President Obama has made uh, renewables a, a big priority for his administration. He set goals for uh, federal facilities to uh, not only implement efficiency but also uh, focus on renewable energy uh, and also with the military. There's also uh, the investment tax credit. Uh, which is a uh, federal tax credit uh, that was enacted by Congress that has been a a key feature in helping to grow the clean energy economy here in the U.S. Um, At the state level, uh, that's really where you've seen a significant amount of uh, focus uh, and priority or prioritization on renewables and clean energy, uh, close to or slightly over 30 
uh, states have some form of a renewable portfolio standard or a renewable goal. At the state level, uh, there's been a lot of innovating um, over a number of more recent years in Massachusetts, for example. Um, in, 19, in 2008, uh, there was the Green Communities Act, and the governor at the time uh, really felt, uh, in particular because of climate issues, but also because uh, we're at the end of the energy pipeline in the Northeast, uh, and in New England in particular, um, and spent you know close to 18 to $20 billion a year on energy, of which a majority of that, over 80% of that, left Massachusetts, the dollars, uh, left Massachusetts, left the region, and in many cases, left the U.S. Mm-hmm. And so the opportunity to really focus on ways um, to keep those dollars, invest those dollars, create opportunities um, in Massachusetts or in New England, the real focus was on the Green Communities Act in 2008, which enabled additional support um, for renewables, but with a trajectory over time to ratchet those incentives down mm-hmm. so that there was you know, parity with the more traditional forms of generation like natural gas or oil or coal or other fossil fuels to really enable a opportunity for renewables to compete um, both in terms of the amount of generation and be cost competitive. Mm-hmm. And and as someone who's inside that that equation of the, the cost curve and the competitiveness of solar versus some of the conventional generation technologies, how far away are we from a point where there's just parity in that in those pricing curves without government subsidies or government incentives? Well, um, you know, I don't have a crystal ball, of course, and, and if I did, I might be in a different profession. <laughs> but what I can say is we've uh, consistently seen the cost of uh, solar, for example, um, come down both on the um, soft cost side as well as on the, the panel cost side. Uh, and that's in part due to uh, the policies that have been enacted um, in various states to really support renewable, clean renewable energy. So we've seen soft costs come down. Uh, we've also seen, like I said, panel costs and total project costs come down. And uh, we've seen the job creation effect of um, solar and renewables in general uh, and energy efficiency. Uh, so, you know, we're seeing the opportunity, and and quite honestly, in New England, um, we have some of the highest electricity rates in the United States, and that is driven in part by the fact that uh, we uh, have system constraints uh, in in New England, um, and so our pricing has uh, been consistently among the highest in the U.S., much like Hawaii, which has the highest electricity costs in the U.S., but New England has very high historic costs. And we've seen the opportunity, and companies certainly like Blue Wave have been able to, through solar PV developments, which are local, you know, homegrown uh, generation, uh, clean energy generation, that we've been able to uh, enter into agreements, as have others in our industry, uh, with municipalities or with uh, commercial and industrial customers, or even residents through rooftops, uh, and they've been able to save uh, significant dollars because of um, the the cost of regular uh, power versus what we're able to provide them through um, through our own uh, initiatives and our own sites, and that's partly due to the support from the Commonwealth of Massachusetts through net metering policies and mm-hmm. uh, our solar renewable energy certificate program. So. We've been able to provide that relief uh, that is necessary um, when you see high energy prices. Mm-hmm. And you brought up that uh, Congress had passed the the extension to the investment tax credit, um, and and that's generally a sign from Congress that they were supportive of of pursuing additional renewable development. Um, I wanted your insider perspective on uh, any effects that you've seen or that you would see from the recent switch to being a Republican dominated Congress. Is that something that you think will um, will have a significant impact on your business, or are you more isolated because you're focused in in one state region? Well, I mean, so I think there are a few things. I think um, the industry, uh, the renewable energy industry and the deployment of renewables um, has increased significantly over the last several years. So whether you're looking at 
you know, solar or wind installations in Texas or California or uh, up here in Massachusetts, there has been a significant increase in the amount of renewable energy capacity. Uh, and, and that's good for a number of reasons. It's good for the climate reasons that I mentioned, but it's also uh, enabled there to be more efficiencies and uh, less cost associated with those technologies. So we're seeing very mature markets that have grown. And as a result, the, the, the pricing and costs reflected in that uh, in a mature market have helped to bring the cost down. So the good news is, is it's been happening in the U.S. in part because of the, the tax credits. But over time, um, you know, it is always the case that incentives and tax credits are there because there's a need to have them there. But over time, as you mature the market, um, there's less of a need um, for those uh, credits or incentives. And mm-hmm. I think in the long term, that's certainly the trajectory that renewables are on. That said, as, as I mentioned, where in many ways the federal government has not had a uh, uniform energy policy mm-hmm. as it relates to renewables or uh, energy in general, uh, the states have stepped into, the, into that void and actually provided you know, true leadership. Uh, and so many states now have very robust clean energy economies, Massachusetts certainly included, as a result of decisions that were made by the state or programs and services that are provided by the states. And I think you'll still, you'll still see um, that leadership on the state level, regardless of whether or not Congress acts mm-hmm. um, on, you know, any, any new initiatives or any, any extent, extensions of existing um, incentive programs. And it's interesting because you're starting to see states, red states like Florida, where, there's a movement, not by um, uh, the Democrats necessarily, or Democrats are very supportive, but you've seen some initiatives by um, folks that identify themselves as uh, being part of the Tea Party that are pushing to have some sort of a renewable energy program in Florida because they recognize the benefits of it, staying local, supporting the local economy, and creating uh, job opportunities. So I think as you continue to see the great success that has happened in in many states, red states and blue states, um, you will continue to see not only the the case being made, but certainly the opportunity for other states to to also utilize those those good policies to uh, create benefits for for their constituents and quite honestly to improve quality of life. Mm-hmm. It was. I was fascinated when some of the movement around the Tea Party support for renewables developed, but it's it's sort of logical when you think of the ideology from the fact that uh, an individual on their own property can achieve their own level of energy independence um, and sort of be their own provider if they are allowed to to integrate things like rooftop solar or micro generation. So it, it's definitely a situation where there's the unlikely ally um, for the the renewable industry. Yeah, I mean, because at the end of the day, and again, I mean, we've, we've, and I was proud to be a part of it uh, as part of the, the Patrick administration. Um, but what you see is you, you see a, you know, significant benefits, not only from an environment and climate perspective when you're investing in, in renewables, but you also see um, price reduction uh, and you also see job creation. And that, those are pretty compelling you know, arguments to make for investing more um, in uh, renewable technology, and you're seeing uh, more industry grow up around it. So, for example, and I'll use Massachusetts as an example, but there are similar examples across the United States where in addition to, you know, having, I think it was last year, uh, we were the second in the most of installed capacity in a given year, and we're a small state when you look at you know, big states like Arizona or North Carolina or California, but Massachusetts has, you know, well over 750 megawatts of installed um, solar PV. Um, and, uh, you know, that has created, in addition to what we talked about earlier, um, other businesses that have grown up around it. So whether it's uh, a uh, racking manufacturer uh, that, you know, manufactures racking uh, units for solar PV or an inverter company in Massachusetts that was created that now, you know, is providing inverters across the United States. There are a number of different businesses within the the chain that have grown up around this economy. And 
it, it's very compelling, um, and mm-hmm. it's not um, it's not something that's a boom or bust. It's becoming a mature market here, and we're seeing it in many other states. Mm-hmm. And and it's more insulated to the commodity price fluctuation that you see. There's there's obviously the input cost of natural gas that can affect the the price of electricity, but for the most part, it is a relatively stable industry when you see the sort of rise and fall of the oil industry. Um, and it's something that that's really interesting to hear that the the supplementary jobs that, that bubble up around the renewable industry. Absolutely. And I, and I think, you know, you, you've just raised, uh, I think, a very compelling point, and that is, you know, fossil fuels are, uh, the, the pricing is very volatile. We're at the whim of uh, many different um, significant circumstances, right? So depending on what's happening abroad, that could have an effect on the importation of liquefied natural gas or petroleum. Uh, OPEC is a cartel that sets prices for oil. And so there are all these fluctuations and, and world politics have a huge impact on those fuel sources. But when you think about the wind that blows or the sun that shines, uh, those are free fuels, right? Those, those are not fuels that uh, fluctuate based on certain uh, either political or economic um, circumstances. These are fuels that are abundant and available, and harnessing them uh, is something that, you know, for the long term, uh, from a national security perspective, from an energy policy perspective, from an economic perspective, are important. And as the efficiencies and the technology continues to uh, grow and improve, and you see other things on the horizon like battery storage, which um, is a technology that you know certainly will help to address any of the issues from an intermittency perspective. There is so much opportunity in the, in the very foreseeable future. And there are a lot of smart people and, you know, strong focus on continuing to innovate in this space. And so I certainly see a very bright future for renewables. Mm-hmm. And and I, the thing I really took away from this conversation, Mark, is, is that there's this general sense right now that there's a huge amount of focus on things like COP21 in Paris and, and in working towards things like globally priced carbon. Um, and it's really optimistic to hear the fact that that might, that will be great if those sorts of things happen, but that there's a tremendous amount of power that rests within either municipalities, states, provinces, and, and sort of individual regions to make these sorts of decisions for themselves, that uh, an energy transition isn't required to be a singular, a singular global transition, that it can happen in fits and starts in any region in the world at any point in time. I couldn't have said it any better myself. Yeah. Well, Absolutely. I, I really appreciate the, the time you spent with us today, Mark, and, and giving us your sort of insider's view on what's happening on the ground in renewable development in the United States. And, and we wish you guys the best of luck. Oh, my, my pleasure. Thank you very much for uh, taking the time to speak to me today. Okay. Take care, Mark. Take care. Bye. Energy Voices, I'm excited to welcome Todd Hirsch, who's the chief economist of ATB Financial and is a leading expert on understanding all things economically related. So first off, welcome to the show, Todd. Thank you for having me. So the reason I wanted to bring you on the show is that uh, right now, economics is really at the forefront of the world of energy. Uh, Understanding the sort of supply-demand equation um, has really led to a a real change in the global price of oil. And so we wanted to bring you on to help us go sort of beyond OPEC and to go beyond the sort of singular understanding of what is causing the current downturn in the price of oil. So I wanted to first give you the floor to say, in your own words, what do you think has led to the sort of past six months and major changes in the global price of oil? Well, it's a great question and a great topic. There's so many moving parts when you look at energy pricing and and the economics of the global energy markets. But I would say that in the last uh, six to eight months, the, the primary driver has been OPEC and its statements about uh, we're going to keep flooding the global market with oil. Uh, They want their piece of the pie back. They used to, decades ago, they used to account for a much larger proportion of global supply. 
And these days, that, that role has been diminished for them. They only account now for about 35% of global supply. And they're not too happy uh, with a lot of these higher-cost producers like Russia and like uh, the shale producers in North Dakota taking that larger share of global supply. So it's been a concerted effort on OPEC's part to flood the global market with oil, drive price down, and they've been very effective in doing that. And uh, But the question is how long they'll be able to keep this up. And I think that's where the really interesting conversation about uh, global energy supply goes from here. One of the reasons I wanted to bring you on was also to to switch gears in the conversation and to think a little bit more about the demand side of the equation. We mm-hmm. sort of saw the run-up in global prices of oil um, sort of into 2007 and then and then post-2009, largely driven by a sense of demand growth in, in the product. And this entire debate about oil has been really focused around the supply side. And so can you just paint a picture for us of sort of what the global daily consumption of oil has been? Has that changed significantly? What are the projections of that? Just give us sort of an overview of what's happening on the demand side of the equation. Yeah, the demand side is the piece of it right now that's being ignored a little bit because, it, you know, there is a seesaw effect. There's the supply, which everyone's focusing on, but there is the demand side of it. And the demand side has weakened somewhat over the last six or, or 12 months because the global economy, the, the rate of growth expected in the global economy, has uh, it, it's, it's moving into a softer gear. You've got uh, Russia and Europe still kind of in recession You've got downgraded growth prospects from China. You've got um, South America and Brazil. I mean, their economy has n- not really uh, performed uh, to expectations. Uh, and Japan remains a mess. The only area of growth right now, global economic growth, is coming from the United States. And I would also say Great Britain. Those are really the only two major economies where economic activity, the momentum is, is on the upswing. So, the, but the, the, those two alone aren't enough to uh, to keep demand for for energy rising. So there has been, you know, there's that supply side of it, a lot of oil coming on, but there's also been the demand side of it. Weaker economic prospects has resulted in an expectation that global demand is going to uh, to be lower than what we had originally thought. So that's also weighed down. It's helped to weigh down those. Uh, uh, energy prices from that $107 oil, you know, eight months ago to where it's at today. And and what expectation do you have on the economic growth that significantly lower energy prices can bring? It's it, Energy is one of the largest input costs for many industries in the world. So are, are we starting to see that low oil prices have corollary effects in other industries or or has there been sort of stagnation despite low oil prices? Well, there have been lots of signs that um, uh, industries, for example, like airlines, uh, that are very, very dependent on the price of fuel or transportation, you know, trucking companies, uh, rail companies, uh, all of these things, they benefit directly from uh, lower energy prices. And we could almost expect that energy consumption is going to rise in, in sort of in tandem with these low prices. Uh, there's a saying in, in these kinds of markets that the solution to low price is low price, because with a lower price, people and industries are going to consume more of that product, so the demand automatically sort of starts to kick in. And we are seeing this. Um, airlines, for example, around the world, they're uh, more profitable than they were uh, five or six years ago when, when energy prices were, were quite high. So we do see that, you know, it's it kind of stimulated demand coming on uh, from those industries that benefit with lower energy prices. Yeah, and the one question the, that I wanted to ask that I haven't heard much discussion on is the the lagging timeline between uh, energy investments and when they're they have productive capacity. So, um, if somebody invests five billion dollars this year, they're still one to two to five years to twenty years in some cases away from significant production. Right? Um, do you see there being the the scenario at play where? investments being pulled back globally in oil production, and if demand growth increases based on low prices, that we could be in a situation where there's, again, a bottleneck of supply because there was a lack of investment? Um, it, it's a good question, and I, I, I don't know if I have the, the very best answer. When you look at certain kinds of investments, say, for example, Alberta's oil sands, it's a perfect example of something that takes 
billions and billions of dollars and sometimes years in the making. And those companies aren't going to really blink. I mean, the ones with deep pockets, they're not they're not uh, reacting to low oil, low oil prices today. They're looking forward where oil price is going to be over the next 30 years. The problem is a lot of those companies don't have deep enough pockets, especially some of the smaller ones, the SAG-D ones, mm-hmm. because you need money <laughs> to keep on with your investment uh, projects, even in the short term. Um, but I guess your question is, is a little bit more broadly based. Um, when you look at global energy investment, some of the deep water stuff off the coast of Brazil, for example, uh, or, you know, even this, uh, um, in Venezuela, a lot of their um, energy production, their, their projects are higher cost, um, require a lot more capital intensive uh, upfront. I'm not sure if we will see the situation where, you know, demand is going to pick up and then we're, we're not going to have, a, or we're going to end up with a shortage of, of oil. I think there's still enough conventional oil that can be brought onto the market very quickly um, from places like um, those shale oils in, in, in North Dakota. Not that they're conventional, but they can be brought up uh, back onto supply very quickly or you know, places like Saudi Arabia and the Middle East. The other question I would uh, want to ask is just around if you see there being the possibility of this being a very long period of depressed oil prices. I think if you look from sort of 2006 to 2008 and then the meltdown in 08, 09 and then the recovery, it's been a real roller coaster of high and low oil prices in yeah. relative terms. Um, yeah. Is there the possibility that this is going to buck that trend and be a very long and slow and prolonged recovery? Well, anything could happen, and we look at a, a variety of, of different scenarios, and, and every scenario, there's some degree of probability to it. We think it's a low probability that energy prices are going to stay depressed, you know, in this 40 to $50 range, that they're going to stay there for a prolonged period of time. And by that, I mean like two or three years. For that to happen, you would have to have both sides of that equation. In other words, the supply is going to have to keep up, and the demand is going to have to come off. In other words, I think the only way we would see that is if the U.S. were to suddenly, you know, falter and go back into a, uh, if not a recession, of a very, very low period of growth. China's growth is going to have to come off, and we're going to have to see far worse outcomes uh, in global economic growth. In other words, the demand side of it is just going to fail to kick in. That could happen, but we think that has a lower probability then a situation where, in fact, we start to see uh, demand pick up, that we start to see OPEC uh, lose some of its grip over energy supply, uh, probably towards the spring or maybe summer of 2015. Uh, so we think the most likely case scenario is that energy prices are going to, in the second half of this year, that they're going to drift higher, probably closer to that, what we were talking about, that marginal price, that $70 price. Uh, by the end of the year. We think that um, is the most likely case scenario, and one probably that will leave Alberta in at least reasonably decent shape. Not great shape, but decent shape. Um, because, you know, it wasn't too long ago that $70 oil was very profitable in Alberta. Uh, it's not at the moment because costs have escalated for producers. Mm-hmm. But what we will see is, you know, if, if we see those energy prices start to come back up toward the end of the year, uh, at the same time, we're going to see the cost structure for a lot of these companies come down. And going into 2016, I think we'll see a, a reasonably decent uh, price and, and cost scenario for Alberta producers. That's all the questions I had for you today, Todd. I, I just wanted to say that we really appreciate the, the insight and, uh, and the depth of understanding on this that you bring. Well, it's been my pleasure to be on the show. Okay. Take care, Todd. Thank you very much. Cheers. brings to a close another wonderful episode of Energy Voices. If you're interested in hearing previous episodes, you can stream them online at bit.ly slash energyvoices or search in iTunes or your favorite podcast service, Energy Voices, and all previous 10 episodes are available for you. Again, special thanks to Bullfrog Power for their support of this show, and we encourage you to share your thoughts with us. Reach out anytime using hashtag energy voices and we look forward to hearing from you and participating in the energy dialogue.